Hi, this is Rachel on Recover. We're here with Rita, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself, and then she's going to answer some questions for us. Thanks, Rachel. I'm Rita Farrell. I'm the director of Child First with Zero Abuse Project. I've been in the field for nearly 23 years. I started off as a founding executive director of a child advocacy center in Indiana. I have been, you know, when I think about when I created and founded that child advocacy center, it came from a really high profile case. Um, a victim that had endured 11 years of sexual abuse from her biological father. And back in the day, uh, they did not have the best practice and the approaches that we have today. And this victim, uh, Chossie, did not receive what she really should have in, in the response to the allegations of maltreatment when she made an outcry. And I think for me personally, um, dealing and seeing that case uh, really hit me. And unfortunately, Chossie died by suicide after a three-year process to the court system and the judicial process. And her father pleading out on a lesser charge and not serving any jail time. Um, And I didn't want any other jurisdiction or team to have a similar case. And so it's a great passion of mine uh, when I formed that and moved into the national realm uh, after a decade of, of being with that center to be able to provide um, not only processes, but training for frontline professionals so that they can do the very best investigation for children and allegations they receive. Okay. Um, Let's get into some of the questions. So how did you get into um, investigating abuse? It was really when I started the Child Advocacy Center, and I really got involved in learning all of the roles on what we call a multidisciplinary team. That multidisciplinary team and Child Advocacy Center movement uh, back in 1985 really um, evolved to best practice of what we do today. And that multidisciplinary team includes the prosecutors, law enforcement, child protection, um, caseworkers, medical and mental health professionals, and forensic interviewers. And that's really where I got involved. Uh, As the director of the CAC, I was also the forensic interviewer. And that's been a great passion of mine for 23 years. So with my role here at Zero Abuse Project, I still conduct forensic interviews. I'm part of two Uh, multidisciplinary teams here in Indiana and still do the work that I train on. Uh, So uh, it's a huge passion of mine. Uh, What does your role at direct uh, director of children first look like? We at Child First, uh, it's a program of Zero Abuse Project. It's the most widely used forensic interviewing protocol in the nation. We have 21 states and two countries that utilize the model. I'm a co-author on the model, and it's a flexible model um, to listen to children when there's an allegation of maltreatment of any kind. Um, So I uh, manage our national and international child first program. I also 
um, develop advanced trainings for forensic interviewers and multidisciplinary team members and um, write a, a lot of peer-reviewed publications uh, for the field. Okay. Um, what are some common misconceptions people don't realize with abuse? Well, I think the the biggest one is that it happens. Uh, we still have a culture uh, where mm-hmm. folks don't want to talk about child abuse. And it's really important that we discuss it. Uh, we have a culture that allows individuals to understand it's okay to talk about abuse, about uh, prevention, and about healing uh, for those who are affected by maltreatment. And so I think one of the misconceptions is society doesn't believe it really happens, and it happens a lot. And then I think the other misconception is that Kids, you know, don't tell the truth or they're making it up or, you know, no one really wants to believe that someone can harm a child. And if they do believe that, they think it's someone that's lurking in the bushes um, that's going to abduct a child. And they don't really understand that more than 90% of children are familiar with their offender and that it happens oftentimes by someone that the child knows, loves, and trusts. So education is key. What ways would you like to see culture change uh, when dealing with abuse? Uh, Having uh, our society understand that, one, it it does happen, um, and two, how they can respond to it. Um, I think that allowing um, folks to know it's okay to talk about it, then we can educate our communities and our children. Our children, I, I kind of see it threefold. We should educate our children how to keep their bodies safe, that it's okay to tell if something is not okay or if they ever feel not okay. And then we also have to train our communities to understand and our mandated reporters and our first responders that one, uh, child abuse does happen. And here are the signs and symptoms. Here's what to do if a child outcries and discloses to you. I think that we need to create that uh, prevention. And then once we educate on, on child maltreatment, then teaching people how to respond to it so that they can recognize, uh, report and respond appropriately for that child. In what ways should we change procedures when dealing with abuse, whether it's in the church or in an organization? Rachel, I love that question because so often in organizations, whether they're faith-based or um, another um, youth-serving organization, uh, they oftentimes like to hide um, when something comes to the forefront. And we need organizations to understand how they should respond. We have a training called FIRST. It's an acronym. Um uh, but first stands for find a safe location, identify your concerns, build rapport, seek details and tell the hotline or, or tell your multidisciplinary team. And, you know, folks 
today think that if they don't say anything, it'll just go away. Well, the one thing we know is that child maltreatment isn't going to end without intervention. So we need organizations, uh, faith-based organizations, youth-serving organizations to understand they don't have to gather all the evidence or, or have all the answers. The law is really clear as far as when they suspect, have reasonable uh, suspicion that a child's being maltreated, that they report. Um, the reality is most people don't report, and that's unfortunate. We know that children tell, um, usually a trusted adult, that's awesome, right, that we could do in our preventative education programs. But when a child tells, the adult should um uh, report immediately and not question anything. I look at it this way. Uh, we need to start thinking about when a child outcries, everything that happens in that entire process. Um, I think of forensic interviewing, for instance. A forensic interview is something that usually happens fairly soon after a child outcries. And then that forensic interview is just one piece of an entire investigation. And our investigators need to have an eye towards corroborating or refuting the statements. All the way through the judicial process, if it gets there, we need to have a holistic approach and follow best practices in our work. So um, that's my hope in, in the procedures that we would use is we always do what's in the best interest of the child. Okay. Um, kind of tell us a little bit about outside of the interview, what other procedures go on? That's a great question. Um, you know, when a child makes an outcry, uh, there's usually a report that's made. And that first training I was talking about teaches those to receive that outcry so that the information that's given in the report is not only accurate, but it's complete. And then determinations are made by law enforcement and CPS or child protection on whether that's going to move forward or not move forward. Uh, their goal is to uh, make those determinations. But if it's determined that it's going to move forward, then that forensic interview would happen. That forensic interview happens at a child advocacy center. That's best practice. They should be interviewed by a specially trained interviewer, and they should have their multidisciplinary team, prosecutors, law enforcement, and CPS observing the interview that I would be doing with the child in a child-friendly environment. Then after that interview, um, we have pre-meetings and post-meetings, but then an investigation follows where they should uh, corroborate, uh, talk with collateral uh, witnesses, and do an investigation that then is taken to um, the prosecutor. And then the prosecutor then moves forward um, in, in the judicial processes. Our goal is for justice, right, in the, in the judicial process. But, um, you know, we want to have successful outcomes in the judicial process. And it really does take that holistic approach. So um, I, I think of our, our best practice, all of the best practice we do in our uh, child abuse investigations now is immersed in, in research, evidence-based practices. 
and we need to have consistency in our response and our investigations. Um, and you mentioned a child, uh, child environment or a safe child environment. What do you mean by that? Oh, I love to talk about child advocacy centers. Child advocacy centers, there's um, over 900 now nationwide. The National Children's Alliance is the national or um, the National Children's Alliance is the national organization that oversees uh, child advocacy centers. And they are amazing centers that provide um, a wonderful environment, child-friendly, age-appropriate um, for trained interviewers and investigators to talk with children. Uh, I'm really happy to uh, work very closely with CACs. That's their acronym for Child Advocacy Centers. And they are best practice in, in the field uh, of child abuse investigations, as is working with that multidisciplinary team. I guess my question would be, what would that room look like? It doesn't have a lot in it. It's a, it's a, um, a warm, inviting room. Uh, when I listen to younger children, I might be sitting on the floor. I have a flip chart piece of paper in there. Uh, I utilize interviewing aids such as diagrams and, and dolls sometimes, um, if the child needs them. Uh, there's not a lot of distractions, but we are, uh, always, like I said, doing what's in the best interest of the child. So if the child needs um, a certain weighted blanket or a fidget, there's not toys or anything like that in the forensic interview room. I, I look at the room as being child-friendly, not um, an, a cold. I, I think in comparison of you know, maybe a police department or CPS office, those aren't necessarily, you know, very child-friendly environments, right? They sometimes can be intimidating. Who goes to the police department? Well, the bad people go to the police department. And that for years is where, you know, children used to go to. So it's nice to have these centers now that provide a lot, not only the child-friendly room, but um, therapeutic and clinical services, medical services, anything really the child and family would need from our, our team uh, are available at, at child advocacy centers. So they're wonderful. I, I also want to talk a little bit about um, the forensic interview. It's a, a neutral information gathering process with that child. So for me as a forensic interview, I go into that with each child uh, with my model that's flexible, uh, following best practice, but I also am age and developmentally appropriate with the child. So that setting can change. My room may look a little different for a four-year-old or a five-year-old than if I'm interviewing a 17-year-old, right? So we always want to have the environment match uh, the child's age and, and developmental abilities. But it's usually a very comfortable room with comfy couches or chairs. And I do, it's being recorded, video and audio recorded, and again, observed by my team. And all of that's explained in our process that we use with the child uh, called Child First. Uh, and we explain that to the child as we go in an appropriate manner. Um, would you ever say like, I know my, uh, my great uncle Jerry, he used to do some, he was a 
worked in the police department and when he would file these reports he would use dolls to kind of help with um the kids to identify parts and things um is there any of that or is that more with you know play therapy and things in counseling yeah it they are utilized in the forensic interview process but in a very purposeful way so um two interviewing aids that i could use are anatomical diagrams and then anatomical dolls. But like I said, they're very purposeful in in how I use them. I can use diagrams um, to come to or arrive to a common language of what the child calls body parts. And I can also use the diagrams to clarify any terminology that the child uses in their disclosure. I would use dolls, anatomical dolls, post-disclosure only um, as a demonstration aid to have the child show me what they have already disclosed in the interview. So yes, on your uh, question of do I use those kinds of interviewing aids, um, but it always in a very purposeful manner that I can legally defend. And I say that really carefully, Rachel, because sometimes folks use diagrams and dolls incorrectly in the field. And we have training at Zero Abuse Project for frontline professionals if they want to learn more of how to use those two interviewing aids properly. Okay. And um, I guess at what point um, did, did the children get a guardian at Lydum? Um That usually happens uh, after, well, it could happen before, I guess, in, in more of a family civil kind of manner, but um, that happens after they leave the Child Advocacy Center, after they've met with me, um, and it's outside the scope of my role, um, but that would happen later on in the judicial process. Okay. What are, are things you notice in false reporting and knowing that it's a really small percentage, but it does happen. Sure. I think um, when we talk about that, we need to talk about how children outcry and make disclosures. You know, kind of a misconception there is that children immediately tell. Um, You know, I use the example of children falling off of a bicycle and scratching their knee and running to a caregiver for first aid cream and a band-aid. That is not how the disclosure process happens. Uh, It's not an event. It's a process. So children tell for all different reasons under all different circumstances. Um, And false allegations, or I should say false reporting, um, very small percentage of children lie by the research. And a small percentage are... um, you know, malicious kinds of false reports, like you said. I I think it goes to speak, though, again, about kind of the culture of society and people not believing things that children say or not listening to children. Um, There's a lot of misconceptions or individual bias about a particular case or family or whomever. And we need to always... One, not make assumptions. Uh, we need to respond to any allegation of maltreatment um, in a consistent manner. And what I mean by that is if someone discloses in the northern parts of, of our country 
Um, then, and, and another child discloses in the southernmost part of our, our country or state, they need to, uh, have the same consistent response. And that is going back to best practice, right? Um, and, and how we handle an outcry. Everything that that child says, um, should be handled very delicately and, and investigated. Uh, so, I just think people's um, misconceptions, uh, assumptions, bias can cloud um, their neutrality. And I want everyone to always go in to each disclosure from a child, neutral and objective, and give it the very best investigative process that that they can for each child. The other piece, too, in my specific work as a forensic interviewer, when a child says something that is inconsistent or a discrepancy, I just don't leave that hanging there, right? I clear it up. I don't um, leave anything without uh, asking about it, exploring it to its very fullest uh, when a child's saying something to me. So, Yes, because children communicate much differently than adults do. Well, and, and that's another great point to make, Rachel, is people need to understand that how children say things is different than adults. There's no one right way to, to interview a child, uh, in a forensic interview. That's a very unique interaction that a trained person has. And, um, I think for those in our communities that, are selected by the child when a child makes an outcry is they need to ask questions in a way that is age and developmentally appropriate, uh, gather the information and accurately report exactly word for word what the child says, and, and don't let any of their personal, like I said, personal bias or feelings come into it. They should be objective and neutral. Okay. Um, what are some really good tips when investigating abuse case? Uh, work with the team. Um, we should no longer be having rogue investigations happening. And what I mean by that is um, doing things within their own agency or on their own. We should immediately after an outcry from a child, gather our multidisciplinary team together and work the case together, not individually. I think another really great tip is to be trained, um, to know, um, for instance, um, if you're going to be conducting a forensic interview, that it should be done at a child advocacy center. You should have forensic interviewing training that is nationally recognized and approved by the National Children's Alliance, that we should have ongoing ongoing training as well. I think when um, we think about good tips, corroborating. We should never have any he said, she said cases and child abuse cases anymore uh, where you put the entire burden on the child's statement and shoulders. We should always keep an eye towards corroborating and or refuting what that child says. So um, again, I think looking and taking a holistic approach, being trained, responding consistently, uh, and understanding how children delay disclosure, why children may um, 
why children may disclose at times where they don't look very convincing, right? Um, we need to understand the dynamics of maltreatment and barriers for children to disclose, fears, threats, um, those kinds of things. So education is key um, when investigating these cases. They're the hardest cases, really, um, and it, they're tough cases. And um, I think understanding how to do things properly um, and not taking shortcuts or not doing things individually, you know, is really important. I think one of the problems kind of going back to an earlier um, piece is I don't think the general society understands what child protection caseworkers do in their role uh, and what law enforcement does in their role. And I think there's some big misconceptions um, surrounding their roles. And we need to um, remove those and educate folks. They are the two agencies mandated by law uh, to co-investigate any allegation of maltreatment. Uh, I admire both of those positions very, very much. Um, when you said uh, a team, what, what type of positions would you want to have on this team? Yeah. So like I just mentioned, the law enforcement agencies and child protection are the two agencies that have to co-investigate. Co so those are a given. I think it's really important on that team, and we call it multidisciplinary team, um, to have a prosecutorial-led team. So your prosecutor, law enforcement, and CPS are those core investigative team members. And then they're working with the Child Advocacy Center staff that at that Child Advocacy Center, you'll have the forensic interviewers like myself. You'll have child advocates. You'll have medical and mental health professionals, right? All of those team members coming together from the onset of an outcry, working together through all of the pieces um, that the child and family needs. So those team members are really critical. Rather, what they used to do years ago, Rachel, years ago before the child advocacy centers and multidisciplinary teams were, were created by Bud Kramer in 1985. And just to give you a little history here, Bud Kramer um, developed the first child advocacy center. It still sits in Huntsville, Alabama, the National Children's um, Children's Advocacy Center and the first multidisciplinary team. And why he did that back in 1985, he was a prosecutor back in the day and he uh, couldn't win these cases in court. And the reason he couldn't uh, win these cases in court was because um, multiple individuals were interviewing the child. It became like a he said, she said, people pointing fingers, people not believing, not doing an investigative, you know, all those things that in 1985, what they really defined was a way to not have, we don't want multiple people interviewing children or agencies doing their own thing on their own um, because we don't have successful outcomes. So with this team, we're talking about when a child outcries, this team gathers and works together from the onset 
of a disclosure from the child. And it minimizes the number of people that interview that child. So there's just one forensic interviewer interviewing that child. Um, and, and after that, the team is then, like I said, it's just one piece of an entire investigation. They're moving forward then um, so that we hopefully can have better uh, success in the courtroom. Okay. Um, what are things you wish people understood better about abuse cases? That they're tough cases and that it does happen. Like I mentioned, I think general society doesn't want to believe about child abuse um, and that it occurs. They want to unfortunately think that it's in some sort of particular socioeconomic level or um, in one neighborhood and not the other. Child uh, abuse cuts across all boundaries um, and all cultures and um, all demographics. It, and that piece is really important. Uh, and I wish people understood that more. Um and, and just think about it, you know, what we hear in the news or politics or whatever is usually those high profile cases that might come into to the media. Um, but the reality is it's happening every day, all the time. And I wish more people would talk about it uh, and children would know it's OK to tell. And there wasn't this, you know, kind of um, we'll keep it within the family um, uh, we won't talk about it. We won't, uh, talk about it in, in, in public. Those, those things need to, to stop. When I came into the field, you know, 23 years ago, I did a lot of educating on, you know, removing those kinds of myths, right? Um, and here 23 years later, we're still removing and still teaching, um, removing those myths because they still exist. So I want, I want uh, people to better understand that child abuse does happen and we need to be the voice for children. Most definitely. Um, what is the best advice you could give someone who's a survivor of abuse? Mm. Um, you know, when I think about, uh, all the survivors, I, I've had a wonderful opportunity in my career to meet and talk to um, is share. Um, you know, we need to have a society that that supports their restorative measures and healing, providing, um, you know, it's not as if they, in trauma-informed practice, and having uh, programs that support survivors uh, in that healing process. It needs to be, again, holistic in our approach. So it's not as if we have a case and it, it goes um, um, through the judicial process and then it's done. Um, you know, they need our assistance um, all the way through that healing process. And, and it should be okay to talk about. Okay. Um, is there anything uh, you'd like to add on that note? As far as what we need to do or something else? I mean, I, I just, I feel like personally in those in the field and, and those uh, that work, I, I 
always want to be um, doing whatever I can to support so that the process, so that the survivors of abuse will know that we were their voice and, and, and we did the very best we can or could uh, in their individual cases, right? I, I feel... I know this is a question you're going to ask in a minute about kind of impacting my faith. Um, I do personally believe my reason for being on this planet uh, is the work that I do. Um, Listening to children, training frontline professionals. um, I think we need to protect children at all costs, be their voice so that we can have a world where um, no child um, ever uh, has to endure the things that survivors have been through. Um, so I um, applaud um, all those who've been affected uh, by child maltreatment. My hope is to end child abuse. Um, that, that's that's my, my goal. Um, what are some best practices in preventing abuse? Education. Um, education, education, education. Uh, we have to educate children to know their body belongs to them. It's okay to tell. Uh, when we look at the research and we see that um, most children do not tell, unfortunately, um, and we know a lot of children will never tell. Some will not tell until adulthood. Um, and that's when, you know, I think about the survivors. It's it's okay to, to share their story. Um you know, it's the only way that we can help others, right? So I, I really, like, that's why I admire um, those who come forward um, that are able to do that. Because um, if, we, if we don't teach children to tell, we can't protect them. You know, we, we can't protect them uh, from the abuse that they're enduring. Like I said, uh, abuse isn't going to end without intervention. And so education is, is really key. Okay. Um, what do you do for self-care? Personally, I love to, uh, kayak (laughs) and I love to paint. Um, so those are my, uh, two, uh, self-care pieces. I think, um, I also debrief. I think that's really healthy. Um, having a support network and, and another advice I'd give survivors of abuse is having those, that support net to be able to go to, to talk to. Um, and, and I think that's really important um, for everyone that not only um, works in this field, um, but those helping others to be that support net. Okay. And last question, how has this impacted your faith? Greatly, greatly. Um, for me, it's, it's sad to, um, know that people harm children, um, but knowing that there's something I can do about it and that I feel is part of, um, my responsibility um, it has strengthened my faith when I see the beautiful things um, that we can do 
in our work um, definitely um, has grown my spiritual faith. Is there anything else you'd like to add that I didn't ask? Mm. Just that we're all uh, morally responsible to protect children and would love everyone to know that not just for this podcast, but they can reach out to me um, uh, at our website at zeroabuseproject.org. Um, I do a lot of technical assistance and consultation on cases. If someone doesn't know where to go or what to do, um, that's what I'm here for is to, to make those connections. So happy to help in any way I can. Okay. All right. Thanks for coming on our show, Rita. And uh, as always, thanks guys for listening. You can always find us on your favorite podcast platform or social media platform. And always, if you have any questions, reach out to rachelandrecovery.com. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel.